Hi, this is Mike Edelhart. I'm here with another edition of Inception, our podcast about beginnings, beginnings of uh, new companies, new ideas in science and uh, science-based consumer goods, sometimes even a little glimpse of the future. We get all that in the package today, I think, uh, here with the first of these for the new year. And uh, uh, talking with uh, Chris Bryson, new school uh, foods, uh, just about our most recent investment. Maybe not the most recent, but certainly uh, we invested in you guys just like it feels like days ago. So welcome. <laughs> welcome to the portfolio. Welcome to the uh, podcast. Um, so let's start out with with the basics. So, what is New School Foods, uh, and uh, why did you feel like that was the best use of your time, your talents, uh, uh, would produce the greatest impact and value, and all that kind of thing? Well, thanks. Firstly, thanks for having me, Mike. It's a real pleasure. Uh, excited to be on on the podcast today. And um, yeah, that's a great question. So. New School Foods itself is a company that makes whole cut meat alternatives. And so when we use the term whole cut, what we mean is a filet, for example, like a filet of fish, or you could also think of that as, as a, uh, a steak for if we're talking about a beef steak. We are specifically focused on, on seafood applications. So our first product that we're working on is itself a filet of salmon. Um, but stepping back, I think what, what's really exciting uh, or what gets me out of bed every day uh, is that we've developed our own proprietary technology for creating in a very scalable way for recreating the texture of meat and or specifically fish. Um, and that's that's really comes down to the fibrousness, the mouthfeel that you get. So, yeah, I, I mean, I could unpack that or talk about it um, at, at ad nauseum. But uh, that's really what, what New School Foods is about at its core. Got it. So. Uh... Uh, you know, it's a leading question. I sort of know the answer, but are you a food nerd? Are you <laughs> some other kind of nerd? Uh, were you a chef or something? You came to this and and, and uh, this wasn't necessarily the most obvious thing. No. Given where you started, right? No, it, it really wasn't. Um, in fact, I wasn't really intending to start a company. So so this is actually my second startup. Um and I was hoping to take some, some time off. So pre, prior to this, I was in the software industry and I, I built a company named Unata that um, effectively built e-commerce software for major grocery chains to sell their groceries online. And the company was acquired by Instacart back in 2018. And like I said, I spent you know the better part of a decade uh, working crazy hours and I was hoping to take some time off. Um, but as soon as there was a little bit more time in my schedule, I happened to learn all about our food system and how scary it is, how unsustainable it is. And, and I just felt very motivated and compelled to get involved. So I first got involved in the space as an, as an angel investor, because to your point, I, I don't have a, uh, a cooking background or chef background or a food science background. So I didn't feel that starting a, a company in this space was the best way I could help out. I figured I could probably help through coaching, through angel investments and things of that nature. Um, but it didn't take long before I got the itch to get back, I guess, in the driver's seat. And um, but a lot of it, a lot of starting New School Foods was inspired by that experience with angel investment. I think after after a couple of years, I just um, I felt that a lot of startups in this space weren't sufficiently prioritizing R and D, or they they weren't able to prioritize R and D. 
And, and we started New School Foods in a little bit of a, a different way, but really, really built the company around R&D. So yeah, I did not expect to end up in the space. I mean, I, I can barely cook, um, never mind whether or not I have an engineering or, or a food science degree. So um, nonetheless, it's a really exciting space to be in. Got it. And one of our other companies, uh, which happens to be in recruiting and HR, the CEO said, I have no background in that, and that's why we won. That nobody with any background doing this ever would have thought of what we thought of, never would have done it, would have said you can't do that, would have presumed that all kinds of other things were the natural way to go. And it feels like there's some of that here because we look at a lot of companies in next generation food. We, like you, believe that food has to be decoupled from its traditional sources if we actually want to feed everybody. And we haven't seen anything like what you're doing in any other uh, company, it seems to be really um, novel. Yeah, I, I think having a, I think there are a few benefits to outsiders moving into a new industry. And so, one is is uh, if I'm being candid, is ignorance. You know, the fact that you don't know how certain things work means that you'll you might take certain risks that other people wouldn't take because you just don't know how crazy the risk is that you're taking. So, um, in some sense, that's that's sort of an advantage. Uh, I also think that having a fresh perspective and coming from a different industry allows you to you know, question certain assumptions and, and try out things that maybe other people wouldn't have tried out. So to that, to that notion, kind of going back to what you're saying about what we're doing in, in terms of it being different, when I was looking at a lot of the startups in this space, what sort of shocked me is that the majority of the companies two, three years ago that were getting started in the alternative protein space we're riding on this massive high of, of companies like Beyond and Impossible creating this new industry and everyone wanted to get in in the game. What I noticed is that the majority of companies were just rushing to create a product and get it in front of investors so that they could get funding. So naturally what happens in, under those circumstances is everyone goes back to the same toolkit. Everyone, and the problem with alternative proteins is the toolkit's pretty small. It's usually two or three proteins and one or two different processing methods. And so you end up with a lot of products that taste or have that taste the same or have the same sort of texture. And I think, I mean, we probably all agree that alternative protein still has a ways to go, right? Not everyone has become plant-based. So that means we have an R&D gap to close. So New School Foods was really started in the spirit of finding new tools to add to the toolkit. So what we did is we doubled down on creating a novel processing technology to recreate the texture of meat, the fibrousness of meat, um, and in a way that hadn't been done before. And, and so we, we intentionally moved away from the existing methods that were already being used by everyone. And I think that's that maybe that willful ignorance or that blind ignorance and that, that, that you know, willingness to, to question whether or not the current methods were adequate um, set us up for success. And, and, you know, if I'm being totally honest, there was a high probability when we ex underwent all this R&D that, that most of it wouldn't turn out. So we knew going in that when we invested in a lot of these R&D projects that we probably wouldn't be successful, but I think we, we got lucky. And I'd say so. So let's talk a little bit about what it is that we keep talking about this new approach. Uh, sure. We haven't actually explained what is the new approach. Yeah. So uh, 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 to the extent you can, without sort of giving away uh, the secrets, uh, uh, let everybody know just what you're doing that's different and why it produces the outcome you're looking sure. for, which is uh, uh, meat and fish that are more like meat and fish. 
Yeah. So to, to, to contextualize this, probably best to maybe first start with, with how most plant-based meats are, are made today, if that's okay with you. Um, sure. So today, the most commonly used process to, to create plant-based meat uh, is a process called extrusion or specifically high moisture extrusion. There is also another one called mix and form, but effectively the extrusion based process, which is quickly becoming the most common one is a heat based process. So the, the fundamental challenge with, with how that works is in order to create the, the fibrousness of meat. So if you think about meat, meat really comes down to the texture of like all those different fibers moving in the same direction. Right? So if you think about a steak and you pull it apart, or even a piece of chicken or fish, you have all these little fibers that are running or that are moving in the same direction. So we call those directionally aligned proteins or protein fibers. So extrusion can recreate that because what it does is it takes your, um, your plant protein ingredients, your, your protein isolates, and it heats them up to a crazy high temperature and then it stretches them out into these fibers. And that's great. Um, the challenge though is that you are heating and basically cooking those proteins. So you end up with a product that, that emerges pre-cooked. And if we're thinking about whole cuts, so this, so whole cuts, like I said, the fillets uh, applications, whole cuts as part of the overall meat industry, I think is, is well over 50% of the market, right? So the other, the other half or the other less, the other um, minority segment being uh, ground products or flaked products or things like that. The whole cut meat market is really the big, big opportunity. If you think about how whole cut products are sold in the grocery store, they're not sold pre-cooked, they're sold raw. And we know that companies like Beyond and Impossible and Just, they've been successful when they've placed their products side by side with the products that they're trying to emulate or, or serve as a substitute for. So if your product comes out of an extruder and it looks pre-cooked and you're putting that next to a product that looks raw and that looks shiny and sort of gelatinous and uh, semi-translucent, you, you're going to have this uncanny valley type experience as a consumer where you look at the two products and they just don't look the same. And well before you put the product into your, into your mouth, you're, you're deciding whether or not to buy that product with your eyes, right? You're, you're making that purchase decision based on appearance. So I think that's a very, very important aspect that, um, that unfortunately today's existing solutions like extrusion because it pre-cooks your product don't address. Long-winded way of, of coming back to your question, which is we developed a cold-based process that does not cook those proteins. Um, so our process is, um, which we were able to, to get a patent on, actually takes a gel and it restructures. We basically turn gels into scaffolds. So we first start by creating a scaffold that really recreates the structure of meat. So then we take these scaffolds and which have all these basically empty protein fiber channels or these empty channels and we're able to fill up those channels with our proteins and fats and um and colors and and so forth and flavors excuse me so it's um it's a it's a cold based freeze based process that basically restructures uh gels into scaffolds and then we can put our ingredients into them i'm oversimplifying but hopefully that helps all right so it starts cold it stays cold and coming out the other end uh and uh it's uh, therefore much more like the salmon uh, before in the store than it would be. Also, there's a, in real food, if you want to call it, in food that comes out of nature, 
there is a certain uh, chaos and, and randomness. It isn't as if there's meat, then there's muscle, then there's tissue, then there's meat, and it all sort of wanders around uh, um, uh, inside one another. And so if you want to create the look and feel and experience of the real thing, to a certain degree, you have to have some randomness in there or it just seems too orderly. And, and you've got that as well, that this process produces something that isn't uh, too orderly, that doesn't look like a laminated set of different things masquerading. Yeah, that's a very good point. And, and, and going back to what you said before about the product emerging raw, our, just to be clear, our, our goal is to create products that the consumer or the chef can, can take into their kitchen and can, can truly watch that product evolve because the proteins themselves are not cooked. So when you cook the product, it does transition from raw to cook, just like meat does. So it's a much more authentic, realistic experience. Um, speaking of authenticity and, 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 and having that natural look to your point, we've also spent a lot of time thinking about how we can recreate the bigger structure. So certainly you have the individual protein fibers, but to your point, especially within salmon, you have this very obvious structure of the, the orange or the pink tissue that is separated by the, the white connective tissue, all those white lines that run through. And you're right, there is a, there's a very interesting shape to it. And, and it's not necessarily, like you said, laminated where everything is, is exactly the same line. So um, we've spent a, a huge amount of time as, as an R&D team thinking about how we can recreate that broader macro structure and those white lines and how those white lines somewhat melt when you cook it so that it starts to flake apart. So um, you're absolutely correct. I think, uh, I think creating something that feels natural is a very big is a very important step towards convincing consumers to adopt these alternative products. Yeah. Well, when you cook a salmon fillet, it, it, it's that flakiness and the sort of spring, if you hit it with the back of your fingers and stuff that you're looking for, and if you don't get it, you really won't be able to tell whether it's cooked and it won't have the same mouthfeel. Exactly, you're completely correct. So, uh, so you talked about all this experimentation and stuff and, and uh, being an angel investor, and you really sort of carry this on your back for a while. So we're in a very early race, but you've been running this company and funding it yourself. Uh, talk about that some. Why be all in that way? Why not go out and get other people's money and more help and all that earlier? Uh, why carry so much of the burden through the yeah, early days yourself? It's a really great question. I think that uh, it's, it's really interesting. Having had the previous company uh, that exit under under my belt, it was really interesting to see how investors approached me differently post-sale as opposed to when I was doing my first funding round for, for my first company, where there weren't many investors who, who wanted to touch our business. And I, I, I remember after the sale, a few investors said, just make sure you tell me what your next business is, I'll, I'll cut a check for you. And I, I felt very conflicted about that. I wanted I wanted those investors to scrutinize our business. And so it was very important to me that before I asked for someone else's money, that I could prove one, that I'd be willing to put in my own capital. And secondly, that I could look myself in the mirror and know that if I was gonna take advantage of that amazing opportunity where I knew investors might be more willing to invest because this is my second company, I wanted to know in my heart of hearts that I truly had conviction around, around this business before I raised capital. I wanted to make sure that those investor dollars were going, whether it was to my company or another company, 
towards an opportunity that had real potential. Because at the end of the day, my goal in, in starting this company was really to create impact. So once again, this, this just goes to being able to have conviction and to make sure that the dollars that we were raising were going to the right place. Got it. So, uh, so now I have brought in uh, uh, some outside money from us and other helpful uh, folks. Uh, and so where is the company right now? Uh, where is the product right now? What do you see as uh, what's likely to happen next? Right. So we haven't yet announced the funding round, but that's going to happen um, within the coming weeks. Um, the use of proceeds are will be detailed, uh, I think, in a little bit more uh, in more detail, I think, through the press release. But effectively, it's to allow us to scale up and grow and to move into a, a pilot operation. That's about the extent of what I can say. Um, but we have been largely a, you know, to date, an R&D centric team. Um, we have had a lot of different laboratories working on different problems, whether that's texture or flavor, uh, whether that's flavor development or flavor analysis. So um, there has we've been running somewhat covertly, but um, but you'll certainly see a lot more from us this year. We're certainly uh, looking to use that new capital to to scale up and and eventually bring our our product to market. Can't wait to see it. So uh, it was your own money. You don't have any background. Uh, so how'd you get the expertise you needed to do this? Did you rent it? Did you hire it? Was it a mix of the uh, above? Did the uh, world's greatest food scientists happen to sit down next to you at the bar? Uh, uh, how did you get what you needed? It, actually, oddly enough, it's a little bit of all, all three of those. So when I first got the inkling that there was an opportunity, two things really stood out when I was looking at all the startups. Obviously, the overarching theme was that we don't have enough R&D centric companies, but specifically the segments that interested me were whole cut applications because it's it's the majority of the market and I didn't feel like there was sufficient R&D specifically in that category. Additionally, the seafood category was something that just wasn't getting a lot of investment. There weren't many startups. So once that was clear to me, what I then did, because I, you're right, I didn't have the expertise, I then went to uh, some friends at, at the Good Foods Institute and I said, I'm looking to fund a lot of different academic research. What I wanted to do is put, open, put out a call for proposals to some of the best food science universities in the world and fund research for the better part of a year. And then the idea is if you fund six projects or like a portfolio approach, maybe one of those R&D projects bears fruit. And so I worked with some of the folks at GFI who then later made some introductions to my eventual food science advisors and then with the help of those advisors, we created six different calls for proposals for six different R&D projects. And we shared that with some of the best food science universities across the globe in Canada, in the US, in Europe. We watched some of those proposals come in. We picked the ones we were most excited about. And then, um, and then what we did that was a little bit different, most academic projects when you sponsor research, sort of you cut them a check and then you get a paper from them six or 12 months right. later which was not really, I, I don't know if it was because I was impatient or just too excited about, about what they were working on, but we decided to work in a much more collaborative fashion with our academic partners where we would check in on a weekly basis and get updates. We ran it more like a tech startup where the roadmap was very agile. We basically used the results from the prior week to inform where we were going, as opposed to saying, we want a paper that's on this one specific protein, right. come hell or high water, we're only right. gonna do these experiments. Right. 
So that was great. And it allowed a lot of those, um, a lot of those R&D projects to meander and find success. And um, over, after the course of a year, one of those projects in particular identified this food structuring technology that turned into a patent. One of our other projects helped identify really some of the key compounds that are unique to salmon for recreating the flavor. It was, it was a, yeah, it was a, a mix of hiring um, some great advisors, um, getting advice from some people, sponsoring some research, and then some of those researchers actually ended up joining the team full time. So as the, as the research started to bear fruit, we started investing more in the company and then started growing the full time operation. Got it. Getting ready to describe it, it seems so natural, and yet it's an approach I hardly ever <laughs> seen. Uh, uh, you're right. It, it, the academic side is that sort of here's the check, see in a year, and hope you get lucky. Uh, and often it's I got to find one or two people. We're going to lock ourselves in a room, and this small group, we're going to get it right. And exactly uh, the, the sort of portfolio management, if you want to call it that, or hedging a little bit, mm -hmm. which you don't know. You go in not knowing the outcome. So uh, you got to have a lot of hands poker going at once. Exactly. Yeah, we want, we wanted to have good odds. I mean, this is a big. Our our food system is a really big global problem, and it's a, it's it's an elephant in the room for I think in, in most conversations. Um, so we just I I felt very motivated to increase the odds, and we also did get some funding from. Um, from some Canadian government sources, so notably an organization called Protein Industries Canada. And I use that to match a lot of the capital that I put in to basically double our, our investment in R&D, to double our throughput in R&D. And, and that's why I'm so excited to actually be building the company here, even though um, I think we're only gonna launch in the US first. <laughs> uh, I don't share that too much with our Canadian friends. And, and I think it's very important that the next generation of food companies be very economically minded because we know that not only do we need to close the sensory gap but there's also a price gap and if these products are always going to be expensive then they're always going to be a niche product so uh, that's why i'm so excited about building it here i think we can build a more economically viable product here even though we're going to be selling it um, predominantly into the united states got it um I'll look forward to that we actually felt the same by the way looking mm. at you and the uh, amount of uh, progress you've been able to make for very uh, small amounts of uh, cap table impact uh, and uh, 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 and all that. And uh, some of that, I think, came from those uh, government programs. Uh, so a year from now, what does a company uh, uh, look like? If we're doing this again right after New Year's next year, what do you think we'll be talking about? That's a, a great question. Um, and I this is this is like favorite topic as, as, as a founder to sort of predict the future. And uh, obviously as founders, we're notorious for being uh, overly enthusiastic or optimistic, but our focus really is going to be on, on scaling up. So I think first and foremost, we're gonna go from the great team that we are to hopefully double in size and, and recruiting a lot of very smart, talented individuals. So growing the team is, is a huge priority and then um, building out our pilot capabilities, our pilot manufacturing facility, uh, which, like I said, we'll have more to share about that very soon, but um, hopefully our facility is operational uh, in 12 months time and we'll be able to start giving tours, start seeing product come off that line. And, and really the goal is to, to validate our technology. So we're very, very excited about um, not just what our technology can produce from a product perspective, 
but we're very excited about its inherent scalability. We think that fundamentally this technology, unlike a lot of some of the other friend, like some of the other newer technologies that are coming out, I think this is fundamentally rooted in a scalable technology and we intend to prove that out over the next year. Right. Yeah, we, we agree. That's why we invested. This looks like it has potential to get big and, mm -hmm. and food is a lot of people. Uh, so if the, you've got salmon and people want it, <laughs> you have to satisfy uh, uh, a big market, which is the opportunity, but also the, uh, the challenge. So uh, uh, let's pledge ourselves to do that. Let's pledge ourselves to open next year That'd and we'll do the same time next year. We'll start doing that kind of thing. <laughs> and um, and uh, talk about where you are. We're delighted to be investors. Uh, we think this is an important area. We think the world needs it. Uh, and uh, 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 we're uh, uh, very keen on uh, uh, what you've done so far. So can't wait to see what happens next. Thank you, Mike. I really appreciate it. Same time next year sounds great. And I really appreciate your, your commitment and your fund's commitment to this space. Happy to. Uh, talk soon. Uh, can't wait uh, till I uh, get a chance to try some samples. <laughs>